Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. All right, what's up, folks? Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. Today, we speak with outgoing state representative Moira Walsh. Rep Walsh, someone who is uh, no stranger to the B-Town audience and followers of Rhode Island politics at large, the outgoing state representative from Providence who was not afraid to challenge Speaker Mattiello and leadership as a whole during her time as a state representative and as a result was cast into what they call Siberia basically with respect to a faraway parking spot, desk assignment, but most importantly, as far as having legislation heard, nonetheless, Rep. Walsh, definitely a rabble-rouser-in-chief up there bringing progressive ideals to the General Assembly floor. Now, she was just defeated by Nathan Baya, a Providence Public Schools principal and someone who was backed by leadership inside the House of Representatives, In the Democratic primary. So she is on her way out. But nonetheless, she stopped by for this episode. Well, we did it via Zoom, but you get the idea. A discussion about her experiences inside the General Assembly and what she describes as really um, like a fraternity-esque culture. Moira Walsh, Rep. Walsh, going deep here on this tea time, as she called it, to discuss her experiences up on Smith Hill. And mind you, The rep also breaking some news in this episode, which I tweeted out right after we recorded it a few weeks ago. So you'll hear that later in the episode. Stick around. This is a fun one and really interesting insight into uh, the experiences of certainly one of the most, I guess you would say, charismatic and um, well-known members of that chamber. I think that's fair to say. I mean, look, there are people on all sides of the political conversation who have, with frequency, brought up Rep. Walsh's name. And I think that's a fairly significant commentary right there, you know, that uh, provoking conversation. I mean, isn't that the whole point of having a General Assembly as well? I mean, otherwise, let's just have robots manage us, right? Maybe that's where we're heading. Good Lord. Scary times here. What's not scary, though? B-Town's coverage of election 2020. We're going to be right there for you. We've been profiling candidates, going to continue to do so. Plus, you're going to hear expert analysis on the local level and, of course, on the presidential level. It's all coming up this autumn here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Okay, without further ado, Rep. Walsh back on B-Town. So, all right, so we're coming off of a primary that, um, you know, frankly, you lost your bid to retain your seat. And as you just mentioned, before we started the podcast, you know, it's your, you know, you put out a, a statement that was really um, more than just a concession statement. It was, it was sort of saying, Hey, look, the, the, I'm handing off this role in a way to somebody who maybe at least demographically reflects the community possibly better than I do. So can you kind of elaborate on that? Your, your sort of thought process here now, almost two weeks after the primary. For sure. So um, I have known the Bia family for for most of my life. Um, many of the Bia brothers worked uh, at my father's old nonprofit, the Earthen Vessel. Um, and I 
you know, even when Nathan first decided that he was running, I never had any issue with him as a person. Um, he's an incredible community member. He's always uh, been very kind to me and mine. Um, my big issue was the way that he was running the campaign, right? Um, so I don't, you know, I don't care how nice you are. I don't think that people who take, I, I don't think that, I think that the way that we run and the way that we win matters, right? And so everything from, you know, taking a thousand dollars from a child predator to hiring the Catunio clan to do um, his mail ballots to having, you know, state house workers taking the day out of the state house to come down and hold signs for him. Those are the kind of things that I find issue with. Nathan as a person is a very nice man. And I think that he's going to do a lot of really good things for our community. Um, and I'm not even a little bit bummed out that, that he won with the, the amount. When we looked at the voter rolls uh, a couple of days after the primary had happened, we found that a lot of the people who had machine voted for Nathan were not on any of our lists. Um, they were doors that we never would have knocked because we we didn't have them. Um, these were people who had not voted in the previous two or three elections. Some of them had never even voted for mayor or governor. And so that was really powerful to see that there was an entire group of voters that had just been waiting for Nathan. And so it's really hard to be bummed out about that um, when when he managed to inspire people who had never voted before to turn out to the polls. Yeah, and we've seen a wave of that, but maybe not to the extent you're describing, but a wave of people who are getting engaged in the process for the first time. And I think in some ways you could argue that's how you came to office as well, sort of this new outside of the typical circle of politics here in Rhode Island. So let's talk about that, you know, because you've been, for lack of a better term, a rabble rouser inside the house, certainly on the outside of the mad yellow camp that has dominated politics in Rhode Island for the last, whatever it's been, six, eight years, and really stretching back sort of that institutionalist versus outsider approach. So you're an outgoing rep now. What can you tell us about the inner workings of the state house that maybe people aren't aware of and, and how that might impact their decisions going to the polls this November? Sure. So <clears throat> as a regular voter before I was elected, I always thought that um, the process that was described to us as children, uh, you know, in uh, Schoolhouse Rock and all that was the actual process and the way that things worked. I thought, you know, you write a bill, you go and present it to the committee where that bill belongs. The committee asks you questions and you guys work together to make the bill the best version that it can be. The committee decides whether the bill is worth voting out of the committee and onto the floor. And then each individual representative on the floor decides based on reading the bill and listening to the arguments, whether or not it would make a good law. <clears throat> that is not how it works, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, Every single bill goes through the speaker. So I draft a bill and I bring it to committee. The committee chair has no authority to move that bill. He has to bring it up to the speaker. If the speaker, one measly rep from Cranston, says no, then every other opinion does not matter. And what happens is that bill never comes for a vote in the committee, so it can never be passed out onto the floor. <clears throat> The chairs of each committee 
are chosen by the speaker, seemingly at random, right? So you would think that you would want your Marcia Wranglin vassals, your public school teachers, right, on health, education, and welfare, where their expertise would be utilized. That's not how it works. Um, you are put in, committees are either a reward or a punishment. Um, and one of the reasons that I think reps don't take the committee process as seriously as they ought to is because they know that they have no agency, right? So when you see these reps wandering in and out of the committee room, um, going back to, to joke around and, and, you know, hang out and, and eat sandwiches or taken off early to go to somebody's fundraiser. It's because they know that their presence in that committee is, is a farce. You know, you could sit there from five o'clock to 10 o'clock and listen to all of the testimony and all of the constituents and all of the people who care about this bill. But at the end of the day, you have no authority if Nicholas doesn't like it. And that's the way that a lot of things work up there. Um, when I was first elected, I deliberately told my constituents, I'm not there to make laws. I'm there to change the building. <clears throat> As a taxpayer and a mother, I wanted to know what they were doing all day. And that's one of the reasons that I felt compelled to be honest with the public about the alcohol consumption at the state house or, you know, the poker games or the cardboard cutouts of representatives heads or the general frat party vibe that was going on in that room. Because as a citizen, representative aside, as a citizen, you're wasting my time and you're wasting my money. And as a Democrat, it's really frustrating because our party is the one that gets <coughs> all of the blame. So there's a segment of the Rhode Island population that thinks that Governor Raimondo is the worst thing to ever happen to our state. And she's a deeply terrible traitor and tyrant and all that. And my thought process is she has no authority. Literally nothing that goes wrong in this state, with the exception of right now in the executive orders and all that, can be attributed to Governor Raimondo. She's not in charge. And so it's frustrating to me that she gets thrown under the bus face first every single time, <clears throat> when in reality, she is a figurehead and the Speaker of the House holds all of the cards and all of the power. Um, it's also really frustrating because since Rhode Island has been a blue state for so long, we're A, we're kind of ignored on the national level, right? Because people think that we're finished. We've already done all the work. It's a blue state. Um, on a local level, people just fill in that Democrat bubble and don't think anything about it. In the political world, politicians are smart and they have figured out that it does not make sense to run as a Republican in Rhode Island. And so there are many Republicans who run as Democrats. Um, I say this a lot, but it's very true to me and it's very concerning to me is that it used to be you would have a Democrat and maybe there were one or two tenets of the Democratic Party that they didn't agree with, right? You know, they were pro-social justice, they were pro-economic reform, they were, um, you know, pro-choice, and, and, and maybe they just happened to have some family members that liked guns, and so they weren't going to be with you on the Second Amendment. Now, name me one policy of our Democratic speaker that lines up with the National Democratic platform. He's anti-choice. He's pro-gun. 
He's pro-austerity measures. He's anti-social justice. He doesn't believe in inequality against women or racism against Black people or that slavery existed in Rhode Island. This is not a Democrat. And my dad always says words have meanings, right? And Democrat means something. And what we need to do is we need to get the voters to understand that they have to start putting more work in, that they can't just show up and circle the Democrat and call it a day, that they have to do the research and check and make sure that these people are actually who they say they are. Yeah, that's been the story of Rhode Island politics for a while is that, you know, you have the conservative dino Democrats that are largely in charge. And then really the two pronged attack against that being the Republicans and what are now widely known as progressives. Do you find that you feel that in general right now, things are with with the results broadly speaking, not necessarily in your race, but with some of the other races around the state? Do you get the sense that people are starting to wake up and a lot of the progressive victories in whether you're talking Tierra Mac knocking out Harold Metz or um, Cynthia Mendez taking out Billy Conley, whatever it may be, do you feel like people are starting to say, oh, hold on a second here. I want my values represented. So I have to dig in more as a voter and identify the people that can do that best. Do you think we're in the right, heading in the right direction? I think we're trying to. Um, I I definitely give voters a lot of credit for the the impeccable choices that they made in those elections. I also give the candidates a lot of credit. I think that this year, with the emergence of the co-op, um, there was a really good focus on making policies that we've been pitching for years more digestible to the everyday man. I think one of the greatest things that the co-op did, at least for me on the doors, was the fight for 15. I've been fighting for 15, you know, for the last six years, um, even before I was a representative. But the, the difference in the way that people respond when you express to them that $15 an hour is just over $30,000 a year. It makes such a huge difference. And I think that that's one of the things that they've done best is to make these really complex political policy issues digestible for the every man. Um, and I think that that was a lot of what gave them the success that they did was that, yeah, they were fighting for issues that progressives and, you know, far lefties have been fighting for for a really long time. But they finally, um, you know, broke away from the, the, the core of the Democratic Party, which, you know, progressives and, and leftists at the end of the day were born of the Democratic Party. And as such, we suck at messaging. We suck at messaging. It's just, I mean, MAGA, for all its flaws, is catchy. And what was the Democrats' response? Like, better jobs, better deals, better insurance, better pizza, Papa John's. Like, it yeah. just, it didn't... <laughs> You know, it wasn't, it wasn't catchy. It wasn't memorable. And I think that the co-op has been very good and progressives in general have been very good at making these policies digestible, reasonable, and rational to everyday people. So I'm very grateful to them for that. But I also think that voters themselves are getting really concerned. Um, 
every generation has gone through <clears throat> political and social turmoil. Um, but the sheer volume of things that are happening simultaneously are really terrifying people. And so there are people who never felt the need to go out and protest. There are people who never felt um, the, the imperative to find out who their representatives were, who now realize like, we have fire tornadoes now. That's a thing. Fire tornadoes and murder hornets and the sea levels are rising. And like, I have to start paying attention now. Um, one of my favorite comedians, John Mulaney says, you know, nobody paid attention when Obama was president because you don't worry when you leave your kids with a sitter. Everybody's paying attention now because the sitter is Nick Nolte, you know? So like now we have to focus up and be like, oh, are we safe here? Do we need to have a contingency plan? Um, and so there is something about things going well that does encourage complacency, but I think that Rhode Island particularly has this incredible movement of young, vibrant, enthusiastic volunteers and candidates who are not interested in the status quo for a moment longer. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see the dichotomy when we get back to the, well, when they get back to the state house and there's, you know, this group of of Democrats who are deciding, okay, maybe we replace Nick with somebody you know, similar, the Joe Shikarchi range, one of his other leadership positions. And I don't think that the David Moraleses and the Brianna Henrys of that room are going to let that fly, you know? And so I'm very interested to see, um, you know, what these young people are willing to compromise on and what they're not. I think that they have much higher standards for what's going to let them sleep at night than a lot of these mushy middle Democrats do. Discover over 200 episodes of Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast, on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your pods. Or head over to our website, ripodcast.com. It'll be interesting to see what happens in District 15, where Barbara Ann Fenton Fong is mounting a serious challenge to the, the speaker. You know, putting up these vignettes today, they had some kind of board game guess who of Matty Yellow, and they, they keep going back to this notion of the Matty Yellow gang. So, you wonder if that will woo voters or if the idea of legislative grants and having the speaker in your district will outweigh, you know, any of the negative imagery that's being put forth. That's the challenge, I guess, that we will we'll look for there. I've got to hope that the, the voters of Cranston are as upset with the waste and corruption as the rest of us are. I don't think that Cranston voters are that um, categorically different from the rest of us. I, I just don't know how you convince yourself that a man knee deep in four grand juries is the guy for you. Just consider the idea that like he may go to jail mid, he may get indicted. He may get in trouble. He may have to leave in the middle of a session. Um, I don't know that it's worth it anymore to them. You know, I don't know that it's worth it anymore to have to explain away this many controversies. What are some of the things that you saw in your time on in the General Assembly that were most disturbing? You know, you mentioned the sandwiches and, and the, the poker games, but anything particularly disturbing stand out? So for me, um, a lot of it was the way that our voters were treated, right? So it blows my mind that in a committee where, you know, hundreds of regular everyday citizens have 
taken time out of work, have found sitters for their kids, have come in their work clothes after working an eight to 10 hour shift to then sit there and watch paid lobbyists get to go first on every single bill. Now, just on a personal level, I would assume that the people who don't get paid should have first dips. That's just like a common sense thing to me. Um, And it also sets a bad precedent, right? Because there are people who've been sitting there since two and three in the afternoon, saving seats for them and their friends. And all of a sudden, this person comes in five minutes before the meeting and they get to go first because they're more important than you. And just the way that people would address regular kind-hearted neighbors who are coming out of their own free time to talk about things that really impact them and the way that people would just shoo them away, not give them the courtesy of listening um, on their phones, whispering to each other, not paying attention. It was so disheartening. Um, you know, early in session, everybody will sit at their desks and wait for people to come and ask them questions. And by June, everybody just waits in the lounge until the bell rings so they don't have to be accountable to anybody. Um, and of course, there are exceptions to the rule. You know, Edia Jello is one of the most patient and incredible humans that I've ever met. And she would always show up, you know, 15 to half an hour early so that she would be at her desk in a visible, available place. And if people needed to talk to her, they could. Teresa Tansy, you know, various, various other um, great legislators who work really hard for their constituencies. But at the same time, it's also really hard to see. Um, the one that broke my heart was the bus passes uh, testimony. So we were doing testimony to keep free fair bus passes available for elderly and disabled uh, community members, meaning that the majority of the people who are coming out to testify were elderly and disabled. The bill uh, was a bill that I had sponsored personally. Um, and because I was persona non grata, my bill was the last bill to be heard in finance that night to the point where I had to drive some of these witnesses home because I don't, I can't even think of the last time that the speaker was probably on a bus. But for those of us who ride the bus, they don't run overnight. They stop at 1130. And so in order to spite me and make me sit there for a really long time to punish me for sassing, you will let these grandmothers and people in wheelchairs and like vulnerable neighbors sit here for six hours and then walk home because you care more about wasting my time than you do about not wasting theirs. Yeah. That's some pretty dark stuff right there. No doubt about it. You know, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely demoralizing. I remember when I was talking to the speaker about the bus passes and he was painting for me this very Dickensian picture of, well, we have to be careful we give bus passes to because homeless people use bus buses as a roving homeless shelter. And I was like, well, that sure sounds like somebody who's never been on a city bus in their life, but you know, you do you. And so there's definitely this mentality, um, particularly among 
the more affluent members, right? Where poverty is a personal uh, dysfunction. Poverty is caused by poor choices or low morals or bad um, or, you know, low intelligence. When in reality, um, financial stability is the lottery. It's the genetic lottery. You are significantly more likely to live paycheck to paycheck, food insecure, housing insecure than you are to, you know, be a, a representative with a regular house, a beach house, two vacation homes in Florida and a BMW. Um, and so that was also really, you know, gross to witness was the way that, again, particularly more affluent members would look down their noses at working people who put them there. What would you say to anyone out there who's really not involved in politics? Maybe they don't even vote for whatever. Maybe they vote in the presidential or something like that. And it's just trying to get it, their heads around how, when they hear the, the expression, oh, Rhode Island politics is corrupt or it's this or it's that. What would you say to someone like that to try to bring them into the process? I would say with coronavirus, we are starving for new content. And there is nothing so entertaining as the inner workings of the statehouse. And that if, uh, if you feel as though you're not qualified uh, to understand or have opinions on these things, I assure you that half of the people in that room aren't qualified either. <laughs> um, and, you know, if not for keeping up with what's going on, um, again, the entertainment value, um, do it for our kids. Because while my son loves playing the floor is lava, I don't want him to actually have to live in a world where the floor is lava. Um, and voting isn't just a right, it's a privilege. And we shouldn't take it for granted and we shouldn't waste it and we shouldn't you know, use it as a protest. We should remind ourselves that there are countries all over this world where you don't have a vote, you don't have a say, you don't have a choice. And so for us as Americans to say, I'm not going to vote is a slap in the face to all of those people that don't have voices. So if you can't do it for the selfless reason of your neighbors need you to, do it for the selfish reason of my gosh, is it entertaining? <laughs> Last question. What's next for you? Um, I'm going to take a nap. Uh, my eye bags <laughs> have eye bags. Um, yep. I am looking forward to, you know, a couple of months of making decisions where nobody's life is on the line. <laughs> um, but I'm not finished. Um, there's a lot more work to do. And I think that I am, you know, I'm, I'm working on the, the next race, the next election, the next seat, and, you know, may very well be a statewide this time, because I think that it's really easy to ignore um, one district. It's, uh, it's not so easy to ignore an entire population. So, um, you know, I'm considering an, an LG run possibly in 2022. We'll, we'll see how things go. In the meantime, I'm going to work to support all of my co-op candidates who have general elections. Um, 
Jennifer Volpe, uh, Megan Cotter, Kendra, uh, Michelle McGaw. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to continuing to stick my thumb in the speaker's eyeball, if only from a little bit further away. That's interesting. You mentioned LG because as soon as you said state office, I drifted, you know, it's going to be a crowded uh, gubernatorial field, undoubtedly. I mean, Joe Paolino and Joe Palacina have each said that they're interested in that, you know, and then of course the, the, all the state officers and Mayor Lorza. So obviously not. And there's a lot of people terming out of Providence city council who are looking to run. It's going to be a real crazy, crazy race up there. But that's interesting. You mentioned LG though, because that's a race that, you know, I've, we hear obviously Aaron Regenberg has said he's considering it. We, we, we've heard that, you know, maybe James Diosa would be interested in something like that. But by and large, it seems like that's an office that is, I think Lieutenant Governor McKee has done a really good job of finding things to do there that are meaningful with respect to small businesses. You know, there are obviously there are disagreements you can have about his school policies, but at least he does a good job of bringing those issues to real life. What would you do as LG, I guess? I know, I know this, is, this is kind of an, you know, just a possibility now, but what would you like that role to be? I would like for the LG to be a more important part of the process. Um, I think that they have a really good budget that we could utilize for other things. I think that rather than being a figurehead whose main job is to attend fundraisers and support other offices. I think that um, the possibilities are almost endless with the Lieutenant Governor's office. Um, And I think that it's highly underutilized right now. And I think that that is definitely something that's based on the candidate specifically. um, And, uh, you know, whether or not they feel like putting in more work than is, than is required of them. But I also genuinely feel like, um, we as legislators need to tighten our financial belts before we even consider asking our constituencies to. And so um, I think that there's a lot of underutilized uh, funding in that budget that could go to a lot of really fun projects. And obviously it wouldn't be a one man show and I would have to, you know, talk and figure out what kind of things um, most community members were looking for. But I think that there's, you know, a real opportunity for that office to make a much bigger difference than there is. And I think that we could do it in a way um, that makes it part of the position as opposed to part of the candidate so that every future Lieutenant governor has an important role and it's not just a, you know, a paycheck. Yeah. Cause if we think back to Bob Healy, who was running for Lieutenant governor and who then he's going to abolish governor. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, there have been some there, great LGs. still need an inspector general. Hey. It seems like, I mean, that could be under the office of the lieutenant governor. And there, there's plenty of fun stuff that needs funding um, that, that that office has. So this is the Bartholomew Town podcast. If you'd like to support the independent journalism, opinion, analysis, and entertainment that B-Town has become known for, you may do so by becoming a B-Town insider. You'll also receive exclusive monthly content. Simply head to patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town or click the support icon in this episode.